a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Greetings, one and all. Welcome along to episode 106 of the Howie Games Part A. And am I pumped about this one? Because our guest is a man I used to love watching in action. Mark Philippousis, the scud. Mark was what I like to call a bums-on-seat style operator. You had to watch when he took to the court because he played with such passion and emotion. He had those massive booming serves. He'd come charging into the net, all or nothing passing shots. Tennis, the way it should be played. His Davis Cup final performances in both Nice and Melbourne will never, ever be forgotten by Aussie tennis fans. Incredible scenes on Rod Laver Arena. A hero in Nice in 99, a hero in Melbourne in 2003, Mark Philippoussis. It must be said, few people get to live a life as packed full of experiences as Mark has. A life where at times every single door was open to him. He'd rub shoulders with celebrities, buy and sell beautiful, expensive cars on a whim. He'd be spending big time living life to its fullest. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Scud stories will blow you away, guaranteed you'll enjoy them. But what I love about this episode is Mark doesn't tell these at times outrageous tales to big note himself. He tells them to explain what he learnt along the way and how he would not be the man he is today without going through his at times wild journey, both on and off the court. And that man today, he's a cracker. He's engaging, friendly, self-deprecating, committed to his family and still so full of passion. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Before we roll into it though Please check out on the podcast feed the new edition, the Howie Games Hotline. It's a question and answer sort of deal where you guys and girls are the stars of the show. Let me know at MarkHoward03 on socials what you think of it. Okay, buckle up. Here is the story of Mark Anthony Philippoussis. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie Come on children, try with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games A man that used to do some amazing things on the tennis court Pretty much won two Davis Cup finals for Australia Which I can't wait to talk to him about And I've been looking forward to this all weekend Mark Philippoussis joins us on the Howie Games Mark, how are you going? Howie, thank you for having me, man There is so much to talk about with you I want to talk tennis I want to talk about life in the fast lane I want to talk lessons that you've learnt But when I discussed with my children who was coming on, 
They said, is that the echidna from The Masked Singer? <laughs> and I said, that's the man. Oh, my so gosh. It's funny how the generations change. Oh, so cool. How was it? How was it? Let me tell you, it was fun, but I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I, I, um, I couldn't have relaxed, man. I, I, I tried to tell myself, you know, breathe, take a deep breath. But a couple of things, I, I knew I was going to be nervous, but what made it difficult was... The fact that you're wearing, obviously, the mask and a certain amount of oxygen is, is coming in, not the normal amount. And when you're nervous, you tend to only, only get a certain amount of oxygen oxygen anyway. And then I just, it's just it was tough, man, because I was already fogging, in, fogging up in there and I was sweating. But what <laughs> made it tough was my echidna outfit, the thing on my back, weighed 22 kilos. <laughs> Time to pick my heart up off the floor. Oh, my God, he's such a cutie. Oh, when that love comes down with our devotion. Well, it takes a strong man, baby, but I'm showing you the door. Because I got to have faith. So that, when you're trying to do some dance moves and then you're freaking out and then, you know, I I did my best. I'm I'm proud of it. But let me tell you, I know that I made the right decision because my wife told me the next morning, that night when my son went went to sleep, he looked at my wife and said, mommy, I have the coolest dad in the world because we sat and watched it together. That alone, I couldn't care about anything else. I knew I made the right decision and I am stoked that I, I did that show. But it, it was it was fun. It was a it was a good experience. I would have loved to have done one more song because I felt like I'd have been more relaxed and um, you know, yeah. I wish I would have probably had a shot of Sambuca before I went on stage too, though. <laughs> Frequent listeners to this show know that my kids, uh, I normally tell them a bit about the guest, and then they ask a question. It's normally at the end, but. You've, you've partly answered the question for my daughter. My daughter is 10. She's the one that saw you on The Masked Singer. She loves the show. Her name is Sky, but her nickname is Pickle. So hopefully you can hear this question. Oh, you've partly answered it, but name. this is the pickle for you. Hi, Matt. Pickle here. Great job on The Masked Singer. I love the echidna mask. Did that take a lot of courage when you're a tennis player, not a singer? And were you nervous beforehand? Yes, Sky, amazing question. Hunter, I was so nervous, um, so incredibly nervous. When you do something that's out of your comfort zone, um, even if there's one person watching or one person there, it's nerve-wracking. And I think that was the other reason I wanted to do it is because it was out of my comfort zone and, and I felt like you only grow out of your comfort zone and I wanted to do something that made me uncomfortable, that enabled me to experience something and to grow as a person. And, and, I, and I know that this experience will definitely help me in another way down the line. And so to answer your question, incredibly nervous, but, but um, happy I did it. Yes. So you, you, your, song, your song was George Michael Faith, which you did a fantastic job with. You said you would have liked to crack at a Zambuca and a second song. What would the second song have been, Mark? The second song was set and it was, it was going to be um, You Get What You Give. You know that song, You Get What You Give? I do. That, I, had, I actually changed my mind before we started. I'm like, oh, I want to do that first because it was a little more livelier because the You Get What We Give, I was working with um, Gary Pinto, who was the voice coach, amazing, amazing uh, voice coach and human being. And I just felt like I could more, I was more relaxed and you get what you give and having more fun. Whereas that was a little difficult to sing the George Michael song because it was more, 
he said, you got to pretend you're whispering, you know, to a girl because it's kind of, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Or looking back now, you know, he was probably whispering it to a guy, which was fine too, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, so you had to make it, try to make it seductive and this and that. So it was more of a, so um, I was a little quiet in my singing because I felt like I was trying trying to get that to come across but and nervous. But anyway, man, I, I tried. I tried, Howie. It was fun. Oh. I don't think seduction in a 22 kilo echidna suit would be the easiest thing to pull off. No, yeah. And, and wearing jeans two sizes too, too small too because, they you know, um, so that, yeah. Mate, you mentioned, um, which made me smile immediately, that your young bloke was watching with your wife. So you're now a family man. You've got two young children. You sound like a fella very happy mm. in his place in the world, Mark. Oh, incredibly happy, grateful and blessed, you know, to understand. I think it's more about understanding how lucky I am. Um, I have friends who would more than anything would love to have a kid and they're unable to have a kid. Um, And then, you know, you hear about having a kid and not being healthy. Not the fact that not only that I met someone that I fell in love with who I truly believe is, 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 you know, Call it what, it's stupid to say soulmate, but it is is my equal for me, you know, where certain things happen and, and I'm just so blessed, number one. The number two, we're able to have kids and able for them to be born healthy, you know, um, ten toes, ten fingers, speech, hearing, eyesight, everything like that, and then to have son and then same thing also to have a daughter um, as well. So... My God, knowing the odds of that, um, just incredibly grateful and, and um, just m- more importantly, making sure that I'm aware of it, you know, not to say, hey, I'm lucky, man, and then whatever. Um, what, I've, what I've I made sure that happens now is my son or my daughter say, daddy, come and play. No matter what I'm doing, I drop what I'm doing and I go to play whatever they want, whatever game they want with them in the trampoline, whatever they want, I play because... Soon they're going to be in their teens. They're not going to be. We're not going to be hearing that. Daddy, come and play. He's going to be on his phone. Who knows what's going to be happening by that stage? And you know, um, ten years time, eleven years time, she's going to be doing a teenage thing. And and then by that time, I'm going to be doing four hundred pound bench presses and answering the door with my baseball bat and <laughs> tattoos all over my face. If they happen to be asking for my daughter. Um, <laughs> It's funny you say that. My daughter's 10 now and I've got four more years till I have to become a real grumpy bugger. Let me tell you, man, I'm going to be ready. (laughs) I'm going to be doing the whole protein gym crazy thing, (laughs) answering the door for sure. Because what will it be like if life turns full circle and you get the equivalent of a 16-year-old Mark Philippoussis turning up on the door? (laughs) He's not getting in the door. Um, I'll say a quick funny story. I did a yeah. charity a long time ago in Florida and I played doubles with Chevy Chase. Yeah. And he said his daughter had a couple of, few, couple of daughters and um, the first date um, he came, knocked on the door and he goes, so, you know, you're going to ca- take my daughter out? And he goes, yes, sir. He goes, just one thing you know, he goes, you're not allowed to come into this house until you take off your pants and put them on backwards. <laughs> so that's what Chevy Chase told the first guy who came in. But... Um, <laughs> yeah, I probably won't even let. He won't even. He won't even come in the house. Number one, I'm not even letting him in the house. So he was nicer than I was. And then number two, 
I'm going to have some kind of tra- tracing device on in, uh, <laughs> on my daughter. I don't know. But um, I, I feel where you're coming from. Where I don't know, you- man. <laughs> Don't even, let's not even go there. I don't even want to put those things in my mind. But but good luck, good luck to the first guy that knocks on that door. God help him. You've talked with with a great deal of passion and honesty about your family immediately. I'm really going to enjoy chatting with you when we get to tennis. But at what age, I think you're in in your early 40s now, at what age did you achieve this perspective and calm in your life? Look, I'm not going to say I'm like this total bliss because I'm not. Uh, mm. You know, I need more patience. I lose control, definitely lose it a little bit more, especially going through this homeschooling with my six-year-old son. He's a complete nightmare right now. Mm. But um, certain things have happened where I definitely have woken up to being aware of certain things. And that can only happen through experience and through life. You know, so many times... You know, we're told by parents, be careful, so-and-so, this is going to happen, or he's not your true friend, and you're like, no, whatever, no, it is. And then you learn, and, that, and that's the best way of learning. So um, things just happen along the way where I'm so far from having everything figured out or things figured out, but certain things I know to be aware of, certain things I know that I'm not interested in or not to waste time with and know if I do have any spare time where it should go, um, and then more importantly is knowing who to let in, into my circle. I already have a very small circle. And one thing I'm very aware of is if you do let someone in that circle, it means you're letting them into your life and their energy, it means you're letting into the life of your family and your kids. So, you know, definitely it's not like I'm not letting anyone in my life, but of course it's, it's those people that do come in are very special and they're coming for a reason. Um, cause the people they are and, and that if they fix your life, it's for a positive thing, it, you know, for a positive reason. So tennis, we better start talking about tennis at some stage, although I think you'd be pretty comfortable not to talk about tennis. When did you first start playing tennis? Like, can you remember your first tennis racket? It was like some old wooden thing, man. Some old wooden thing. There was a hand-me-down, six or seven. And what was it about the game that grabbed you as a young bloke? You know what? I think it was the fact that it was an individual sport because – at school, during lunch breaks, you know, straight away you'd go and play soccer. Pretty much it was soccer or kick a football around with friends and maybe a little bit of basketball. I, I, I was drawn to it because I love the fact that it was an individual sport and it was just you out there. Um, and just you, you won. It was you that won. You lost. It was you that lost. And also it was one of the very few sports that no matter what the score was, there was always a chance to win and you could have fought back and find a way back to win. But also the opposite. You, like life, you think you've got to work out. You think you've won, you relaxed, and all of a sudden you've lost and you're in the yeah. locker room. So that was another reason why. there was. A, but more importantly, I think the fact that I was drawn to it because of the individuality of the sport. I, I liked that it was about me and, and everything was on me uh, on, on tennis, you know. We spoke about it briefly last week in the player profile that people have already listened to before they listen to this. At what age did you think this is what I want to do? 11 years old. 11? I was, I got represented, I got chosen to represent Victoria um, in the under 12 nationals. And we traveled, maybe what, three boys, three girls, I think it was. We traveled to, three or three or four. We traveled to Western Australia to Perth to play the under nationals, 12 under nationals. And I walked into the club and 
just saw matches going on. I saw people clapping and watching. Of course, there were the coaches and the, and the parents. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is it. I mean, I was playing tournaments before. I was already playing tournaments under, you know, under 10s when I was nine years old, eight years old, 10, winning tournaments, nine, 10. Um, but that's really when it hit me. Um, and I was 11 years old. And, I, and, you- and crazy the fact is I, can, I vividly remember the thought of like, oh my God, you know, when it hit me at 11 years old to remember something so specific that I, I, I do. So there was no other plan. There was no, I, I want to be a fireman or a doctor. It was like from age 11, that's there me. Was no, there was no plan B. There was no plan B to the point where sometimes I slacked off in class and the teachers knew, Mark, Anthony, you know, what happens if you break your leg, you can't become a tennis player. And it was like, miss, I'm becoming a tennis player. Like if someone said something, it wasn't, it wasn't no doubt about it. I believed with all my heart that, it was going to happen and I was going to become a tennis player and I was going to fulfill that dream. And were you the kid, this is no time for modesty, I always ask this question, it's always a recurrent theme, were you the kid that everyone was like, oh, no, I'm playing Mark Philippoussis, he's unbelievable, or did you have to work your way up through it or were you just that natural I've, talent? I've, I've, I worked my way up, but I must say I definitely had the natural side of me um, from, the, from a young age. I definitely, uh, you know... Without sounding uh, thing, uh, I definitely was always that person where they would say, you're playing Mark. At the end of the day, if Mark played like how Mark could play, there's nothing that can be done. And in the most of the thing that you'd always get the same feedback from the coaches is hang in there. Hopefully he would lose focus or he would hurt himself in some way. Just hang in there. You know what I mean? Yep. Because the way I play with my tennis it was always big guys tennis. I was always made sure that I dictated the play. The, 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 I would dictate no matter who I played and the point was on me, whether, you know what I mean? Well, one way or the other, I was gonna either come to the net or try and hit a winner from the back or I was gonna dictate play. I wasn't gonna sit around chip and chip and chip and wait for him to make his move. That wasn't my game. It was playing big guys tennis. Number one, most important thing is hold serve. You talk about serve, you've already had my daughter. Uh, now my son, he normally comes at the end because I sometimes have to filter his questions, Mark, because he's a bit of a loose cannon. He's eight. His name, as you're about to hear, is Mac, but he calls himself, and he'll explain this why, the big penguin. Now, <laughs> this, this is what you get. This is what you get from the big penguin. Hi, Mark, big penguin here. As you know, my nickname is Big Penguin. I just woke up one morning and asked my dad, can I be called the big penguin? He said, sure. But I want to know why your nickname is Scud. And also, what's the fastest serve you've ever done in the history of your serves? Great question, the big penguin. You know what? <laughs> if I had a, I wish I had the nickname the, pig, the big penguin instead of the Scud and other <laughs> ones. So the big penguin, I got the nickname the Scud I was six when I was sixteen years old. Did you? Um, I was invited to be the orange boy, as they say, for the Davis Cup team to be the hitting partner and all that. And we went to Russia. Australia was playing Russia. We flew to Russia, and I was. It was a day before, one of, you know, a couple of days before we started, before they went on, and the day before the doubles, I was on the back, and I, uh, Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodford were at the net, and I was hitting at them and uh, warming up their volleys. 
And during a time when I was supposed to be just letting them get rhythm, warming up, you know, so they can do their thing, work on their volleys, I hit them like two or once or twice each in the stomach and in the chest with the ball. Because they were angry, they were angry because I was hitting the ball so hard and, and they wanted to warm up and I was, there was no second gear, there was the only way I knew how to hit the ball. So John Newcomb and Tony Roach told me to slow down, they're getting upset and then at, at all Davis Cups, you always have the press. There's press there covering the Davis Cup tie. And then the, the, the next day, they might have said something, a uh, um, little article about that. And that's how the, the press gave me the nickname, the Scud. So that came from um, being the hitting partner of the Davis Cup team. So I've been very formal so far, and I've been calling you Mark. I don't think I can drop a Scud on you, but you seem to be called Flip a lot. Yeah. Which is which one do you prefer? Well, Flip was literally, Flip is my friends. The friends call me Flip. The Scud is more from a press side. Can People I go Flip? Me, of course, yeah, yes. How you can call me Flip. Right, just don't, just, if you see me on a wave and I'm going left, don't you dare drop on me. That's it. <laughs> you won't be called Flip anymore. Um, so I'm a goofy foot. I always go left, man. Even at Winking Bells, I go left. Well, we'll be all um, so, right, mate, um, because I only go left once a year. I'm a big right perfect. man, so we, See, we will never be. We'll go. be perfect on a surf trip We together. don't have to share a pizza, but we can share a wave, all right? Um, um, so you're 16 okay, so, and in Russia. Like, what is that like for a 16-year-old? You, you haven't turned pro at this stage? No, no, I was 16. I was 16, still haven't turned pro. Um, it was, I mean, it was an incredible experience. I mean, number one, I travelled to Russia, but to be part of a Davis Cup team, to see how... It, the part of the guys prepare to see the pressure behind it, to see how the thought process behind it, to see a Davis Cup tie away and, and, and just the crowd, the energy. It was an incredible experience. It was without a doubt um, an incredible experience and so important as a young tennis player to experience. That definitely helped me going forward, you know. Um, and, and I must say, man, I need to just say this. I'm just so incredibly disappointed and sad that Davis Cup is finished because they still have a Davis Cup, but it's not what the Davis Cup was. It's done. In my, in, they've killed it. Uh, I don't care what they say. This Davis Cup is not Davis Cup anymore. You can call it they're representing your country, but it's not the Davis Cup. I'm sad because up-and-coming junior players will never experience Davis Cup like how Davis Cup was um, to, to play a home tie and then to play an away tie and see the difference because there's more pressure on both. The pressure of being away, best of five, um, you know, to experience all that um, is is really I, I really feel for him. Really feel sad. So that um, it sucks that that's gone. Number one, but but yes, it was an incredible experience. Incredible experience. So what was your first professional tennis tournament? Do you recall it? Yes. I was 16 years old and I got a wild card to play in the Sydney International, the indoors yep. at the Sydney International. I think it was called, no, it was the Sydney International. Or the, it was a big indoor tournament in Sydney and I got a wild card and, and lost first round. Um, just so nervous, man. Couldn't even think straight, you know, um, but I was 16 years old. So I want to get to Davis Cup, but I guess in a lot of people's eyes, Mark, you had a famous match against Pete Sampras at the Australian Open. And Sampras, you know, he he was the man. 
you had the blue headband on. I was looking back at highlights of it uh, just this morning. It, it was a famous, famous match in 1996, the third round of the Australian Open. What are your memories of that? Mark Fittipusis, the 19-year-old, playing in his home city of Melbourne, ranked 40 in the world, taking on the world's number one and the number one seed in the last match of the day. The roof still shut as they came out to play. Pete Sampras had beaten Fittipusis in four sets at the US Open. Because in some ways, you know, everyone in sport is an overnight sensation, but it's not true because you've been playing since you were five years old. But that's sort of when you hit the mainstream at your home open in your home city beating the best tennis player in the world. Didn't do enough with the volley. Sampras and paid the price. And the Australian flags really flying as the 19-year-old took the opening set by six games to four. You know, number one, night matches are my favourite because I love the energy in night matches. Packed stadium, I'm playing home in front of my family and friends. And you've got to understand, there's pressure on me, but there's not because I'm number one player in the world. I've got nothing to lose. The pressure's on him. He's playing against a 19-year-old. You know, I really feel like, hey, man, I've got to sit off him before. You know, it's not like, you know, I looked up to him, but not in awe because you don't want to be in awe of the guys you play against. And I remember walking under the tunnel, and this was weird. I was, was nervous, and he was in front of me. And, um, and as he's walking in front of me right before going on court, I just look at him. From any, we're waiting to go on court. I'm like, you know, I thought to myself, everybody just hit me. I'm like, man, I was like, F this guy, just go out there and play, man. I, got, I don't care who he is. I'm in Melbourne. This is, you know, my town. 19 year old, you know, arrogant. Well, I was, I was never arrogant. I was never arrogant, but just confident 19 year old, you know, nothing to lose. This is Melbourne, you know, went on and, and erupted and just, and just played a great match and, and beat him in straight sets. And one of those matches where, so you got to understand against Pete, I wasn't, I, I enjoyed playing Pete Sampras. I was never intimidated playing. Who I didn't like playing was someone like Andre Agassi, I didn't like playing, even though I've been in a couple of, couple of times, few times, because Andre is one of the cleanest and best hitters on, of all time. And he had, without a doubt, probably the best hand-eye coordination for returns in a game, no matter how hard you serve the ball, if he was there to hit the ball, he was coming back at you, you know, with with authority. He done it. 11-9. Fittipusis took the second set tiebreak. The tiebreaker second one was huge because one set all against Pete Sampras, there's a big difference. There's a huge difference from yeah. being one set all, two sets love against Pete. Even though Pete's come back from two sets love down a, long, a lot. But, but, I've had a lot of momentum, crowds going nuts. And, and I just kept that momentum going, you know, and, and just played aggressive tennis and, and went for a lot that, that day and, and um, you know, and just played a, just, a strong, just a strong game. You've done it. Australia has a new star. The game of tennis has a new star. So... You wake up the next morning or the next month or two months later and all of a sudden you are what sports people become, Mark. You become famous and you're on the front page of the paper and everybody knows you in your hometown 
and you're a poster boy, the new man of Australian tennis, what is fame like and what does it mean to you? It's I all I was, you've got to understand, is a kid who had a dream that I worked incredible. Nothing was given to me ever. I worked, I never had any support from anywhere except my family. Uh, and we worked our, uh, our butts off and I worked my butt off to, to, to fulfill my dreams to become a professional tennis player. So what was weird was I was still a young kid, mm. um, even though you're, you're thrust in this limelight and you, you, you were meant to, this is what you're going to do now. I, that scared me, okay, because I wasn't mature enough to be in a position to embrace that situation and to be ready for it. I, it scared me because I just, man, I'm just a young guy living my dreams, having fun. Don't tell me these things. I mean, they're flattering what people were saying, but I don't want to hear it at the same time because it made me feel like where I couldn't have fun or enjoy it anymore because it's, it had to, it's become, this is almost like a job now. Does that make any sense? It does. Um, so looking back now, it's very easy for me to look back and, and, and be very honest and say that I wasn't mature enough or maybe didn't want to be mature enough to be in a position to handle it because at that stage when what everyone was expecting me to do you, it had to be eat, sleep, breathe tennis, okay? And I eat, sleep, breathe it since I was 11 years old to become 18 years old. And I didn't want to be in a place where I had to eat, sleep, breathe. I wanted to be play. I When I was on the court, I played. When I trained, I trained hard. But as soon as that thing was over, I lost, I was off, I switched off and, and enjoyed my life. And... And the truth is, if you want to be that person where I was a very good tennis player, so it's very simple, right? Let me say it this way. I was very good. If I look back now at videos and look now realizing what other people saw, you don't really look at that because it's, you know what I mean? You're, I'm just playing, man. I'm just doing my thing. I'm playing. You realize, you understand, but I wasn't in a position where I wanted to do that because it meant eat, sleep, breathe. It literally, it's almost like having, truth is, the greats have almost no life and that's the reality of it. You know, when you look at it, uh, Federer's, and they look, they, they're, they're obsessed. You need to be obsessed with everything about what you're doing. Best example, and he's still like that, is Rusty, Leighton Hewitt. Leighton was obsessed with tennis. He's still obsessed with tennis. He hasn't switched off. Everyone can still see it. That's him. He would stay at my house. We would train. We would finish training. And he would go, so what do you want to do now? Let's, do you want to go, go watch a movie? You know, didn't want to be alone. Do you want to go watch a movie? Let's go play some golf. Or, you know, when I was like, dude, there's my garage is there. There's a car in there. Grab it. Do whatever you want. I'm going to have lunch. With, with this girl. You know what I mean? It's like, I'll see you in three hours for our second session. That's what needs to happen. And, and that wasn't me. It was at the start, but it wasn't me. And I can just be honest and say that. When I went on court, I wanted to win. I put everything in there, but I wasn't obsessed. I switched off and I wanted to enjoy my life. I 
had a lot of fun off the court and, and lived my life to the fullest. And when I was on training, I trained hard. I, you know, I did hard. I wanted it. I, I hated losing. But then I switched off and forgot about it very quickly. Did you set goals? Never had any goals. Well, I want to be number one in the world. I didn't write it down. The only goal I had was I want to win Wimbledon. That was my goal. That's why I was the most successful Wimbledon because I was, I got on there, I was excited. Here's grass. Oh, back on Wimbledon. Back on the grass. Serve and volley. This is my opportunity. You know, I just wish looking back now, you know, talking openly that, God, I wish, you know, I, I write things down now. I, I give myself targets daily and things. I wish I wrote things down um, then. I wish I should, I should have said this, my, my, my goal is to finish ranking this this year. My goal is to, to win these tournaments or that, to, to be number one in the world. I didn't write those things down. I didn't have those goals. That's the honest truth. I was just playing. You know what I mean? I was just in the moment every time. I was just in the moment. Everything I was doing in my life, I was in the moment. I was in the moment. That's, that's what it was. Back to Mark in a moment. Next up on the show, a man many have requested who plays a sport that, again, many of you bag me for not giving much love. Well, here you go. NRL star Valentine Holmes, premiership player, state of origin representative, a big deal, who walked away from NRL for a time to chase an even bigger dream, the NFL. Yeah, I wanted to challenge myself. That's one thing I try and pride myself. I, I love challenges. I love, you know coming up against bad odds, you know, I like to try and better myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, like I said, it was an eye open. It was, I was pretty nervous in the first couple of days just because I knew the guys who had played there, you know, I obviously know NFL and know the guys, know a few of the Jets players just from watching them. And huh. uh, when I got to see them in real life, it was, it was pretty cool. What was the car park like? Yeah, it was full of Mercedes, Range Rovers, uh, <laughs> Rolls Royces, like, they had some nice cars, those guys. That's Valentine Holmes coming up next. Okay, back to Flip. What is life like when you're 23, you're successful, you've got money in the bank and every door you knock on is open to you? It's scary, man. A lot of us won't live that life. No, is it's, it scary, it's scary. Is it? Why is well, it scary? Let me tell you, because in a weird way, you don't hear no. You know right. what I mean? I do. Like I, I, you have an agent for everything. You don't do anything except pl- go on and play tennis. Yeah, the, there's someone that grabs your rackets. He puts your rackets in. What, what's attention? Seven rackets. He picks them up. It's in your hands. They're already wrapped. Everything's already done. They're in your bag. Your, your clothes are sent to you. They're brand new. They're in the plastic. All you do is take them out and you take the wrapping, you throw them. Everything's done to you. I wanted the, the, the hotels are done. The, your, don't care. I'm not even talking about about complaining, I was blessed. I'm just telling you the yes. reality of what it is, right? You don't hear no. I want to, this, so-and-so wants you to play their tournament. They're giving you this amount of money to play the tournament. Like, uh, I don't want to, I don't want money. I want a black Porsche, the new Porsche in black on black. So I'm, I'm, it sounds ridiculous and it is ridiculous, but the fact is it was what was happening. And the, and the stupid thing was, that that it was happening. You know what I mean? That I could I ask for it and it was no, no. I don't, but he's like, but he's going to give you the money. You can go buy it. Ah, oh, it hasn't come out yet. I want, I want it to be the, get it delivered. I want the first one to, it was stupid shit like that, man. How are we? I'm just being honest with you. It was, it was stuff that 
you get to a place where, and then I was never about money because I said no to so many things and I still say no, but I said no to so many things that that it was about a lot of money because I was a person that never cared. It's almost like the more you wanted me to do something, the more it would put me off. You know, if if the agent came up to me and then my dad said, I was like, this is, you got to do this. I was like, uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm going to, I want to go, I want to go surfing. I I just want to go surfing a couple of friends. I don't want to do that. So what would you do is come up and show up and, you know, what would you say to that kid now? Like with the benefit of wisdom and experience, what are you saying to yourself as a 24 year old? He's 22. I can't say, Hey, I'm 43 years old. I've come back in time, wake up. And no matter what, you've got to be in a place where you've matured early enough to understand certain things or certain things happen for you to understand, or you can't, you've got to learn by through your own Mm. actions. You can't, there were so many things where she's not good for you. Don't even go there. She's not good for you. Oh no, she's good. And it's like, dude, she was not good for me. They were right. You know what I mean? You don't know. Like when they start, kids start dating, like, like, like you want to tell your kid, like, God, she's not going to be good. You know what I mean? You don't know. You got to go through it. You got to go through something. Someone's going to happen. You got to get your heart broken. Someone's going to happen because that's the way to learn. It's simple as that. But I learned that flip through dating a girl at school or uni or someone you meet along the way. You learn that by having it splashed across the front page of the paper. Now, I can't no, imagine No, exactly. That but like. that's the difference too. See, you got to understand too. I never dated. Man, I didn't have a girlfriend until I was 18 years old. That's the reality. I never. I was too busy playing. I was, I did, were the girls at school that I liked? Absolutely. I was way too shy and scared to say anything. I never dated until I was 18 years old. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the other thing. I, I, I it's simple as that. I, I think it's different now and you look at things differently. It's, but it's because of life's experiences. It's as simple as that. Um, and I, and I, you know what too, I wouldn't change a thing in the world because of where I am right now. If that meant butterfly effect where it could change everything, there's no way in the world. And I also wouldn't trade any one of my Davis Cup trophies for a Grand Slam. No way in the world. I don't know how it feels to, to win a Grand Slam. I could imagine it's amazing. I know how it feels to lose in the Grand Slam. It's heartbreaking. It's proud, but heartbreaking because no one ever remembers the runner-up that year. Um, but I know what it feels like to win two Grand Slams for my country and I wouldn't trade that for anything. So on those two, I want to talk to you about losing, but just before that, you mentioned cars. I'm a man that likes cars. Tell me about some of your cars, like when we're talking about having anything at you. Uh, Tell me about a couple of the cars you've driven because I had a look online. There's pretty snazzy motors that you're standing beside. Just indulge me. you got to understand, man, that's one of the things. I thought getting something would make me happy and a position or an object never made me happy. Even when I was young, I knew that. And I would, I would get bored. I, I'm telling you, I, I'm not exaggerating when I would say I would easily go through one car a month and just change it. Um, what, what type of cars are we talking about here? I've had Audi, dude, you name it, I had it. So you've had For, a Lamborghini? I've had, I've had numerous Lamborghinis, bunch of Ferraris, <laughs> Bentleys, um, Bentleys. Um, Hummers, Mercedes, you know, I had eight, I had 15 motorcycles, um, just toys. I just, you know, uh, 
like I said, I, it was never. I never kept it because it never made me happy because I was just bored. Um, and is it is it just sign the check and the car comes in and off it goes? Yeah, it was literally. Well, it was worse than that. <laughs> it was worse than that. I'm going to give you one story, man. I've told this to a few people. I'll give you one story of how silly it was. Mm-hmm. I was in Florida. What was I? Maybe 20 years old at the time. Maybe 21. No, I was still 20. I had a convertible Hummer. And I was going through, I was, I was living, I was training at Boletieri camp and the the, the um, assistant of Nick Boletieri, Tony, was a friend of mine, nice guy. And I was like, Tony, I was in long, living Longboat Key and I, and I said, let's drive to Tampa and a couple of new cars come in on the dealer. Let's go look at these new cars. And Tampa was like a two hour drive from, from where I was living. Let's drive over there. Um, Dodge have just brought out the new Dodge Viper um, and then... Chevrolet brought out the new Corvette. Let's let's just just drive with it to go and come and look at this thing. And um, this this is a messed up story, but I'm just telling you of, of of just some stories. And this is one of them. So we got there, and on the way, it had to stop. It's raining slightly. You know, Florida it rains and it stops, and, and it's so humid. And what happened was, we're going over these 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 big bridges in Florida that they had, and there was and the Hummer back in the day, there was. Um, they didn't have ABS brakes. You, if you locked that hard, it would just lock and then, you know, just hold on for dear life. It was a military vehicle. A, and a trailer, semi-trailer truck pulled in front of me and I was like, again, I had zero patience at the time, 19-year-old. I was like, oh, what, what the hell is this guy doing? So I changed lanes to go. And the reason he pulled over because there was a, a semi-trailer stuck um, on that lane and had just stopped. So I quickly put on the brakes and it had stopped raining and it was slippery. The brakes locked and I'm fishtailing this Hummer convertible military vehicle and we end up doing a 180 and smash against this brick concrete divider. And the concrete dividers are, let's just say, five feet high by four feet wide. And this thing smacks it and cracks the divider in half. And then the wheels are huge on the Hummers. I don't know if you know what, the, you know, the, yeah. the H1 Hummers, they're huge. So the wheels hit the concrete and bounce me in the middle of the road, highway, and the cars are going around me and we're like freaking out, stuff's flying everywhere. Long story short, we had to call a special truck that actually could lift up the Hummer on the back of the truck because it was so big. And we're banged up, a little bruised, but it was a Hummer, so it was no big deal. And um, no, no one was hurt, just us hitting the divider. And then Tony's like, all right, man, let's, let's grab a taxi. Let's, let's head back. Let's head back home. I'm like, no, man. I go, screw that. I'm not getting back home. He's like, what are you talking about? Dude, I'm banged up. I'm like, let's go and look at these cars. We're just 30 minutes away. So we got a taxi, looked at these cars. And I'm going, looking at the, um, on one side of the street was Chevy. And the other side of the street was Dodge. I'm going back and forth. They just brought them in the showrooms. I'm looking at it's like half an hour has gone by and he's like, okay, I'm calling the taxi. We're going home. He's like, no, we're not, I'm not taking a taxi home. It's like, it's like flip. Like, what are you talking about? I'm tired. I'm hurt. Let's go and go. I'm like, no, I'm driving. We're taking one of these cars home. Like, what are you talking? I go, let me grab a car, car service. We'll take us. I'm like, I'm not doing it. So long story short, I grabbed the Dodge Viper because I asked them both. I go, who can get, the, I go, what, how long will it take for you to get this ready? I'm like, it just came off the truck. I'm like, I go, there's a Dodge Viper across the road. I go, whoever's faster, I'm going to buy the car and I'm going to take it home. If you can be within an hour. <laughs> it's a true story. You can laugh because it's ridiculous. Long story short, 
Dodge Viper was ready in 45 minutes. They detailed it. And I bought the car on American Express and I drove back to home with the car and I didn't fit in it properly. So the next day I sold it, but I didn't want to drive home in a taxi. So that's, what, just, what, that's just one story. What does a Dodge Viper cost on the Amex? Uh, that, when it first came out, I was 20 years old. Was that 23 years ago? Back then it was 72,000 US. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. So... It's a great story because it, it's yeah. given uh, it's like our, it, our it, listeners. It's a, it's a great story because it's given our listeners an understanding of what life is like when you can do what you want when you want. So not only that, but I actually was doing stupid things too. But anyway, uh, look. End of the day, I always said, well, no matter what I did, you learn from it. But you also, as long as you're not hurting anyone, you know what I mean. That's the most important thing. But I've got to say this one thing to understand. I can't just say the reason why my mindset when I got to 17, 18, went in one way, actually when I got to 19, 20, went in one way. I've got to tell you something very personal that happened that changed my thinking from a very young age um, because I was eat, sleep, breathe, but changed everything. But you've got to understand he wasn't, my father was diagnosed with cancer It meant beat it twice. Once when I was young, I almost lost him in my early teens, 13, 14, and um, had lost, and almost lost him, but he fought, he fought it and beat it. And the second one, when I was just turned 18, he had he came back and they gave him six months to live and ended up fighting it. Now, watching your someone that you love, we think they have a certain amount of time to live, changed everything for me. And tennis seemed not so important anymore. You know what I mean? I need you to understand the reason why when I'm saying eat, sleep, breathe, um, it got to a stage where I realized I didn't care about eat, sleep, breathe, tennis because my first priority in my life was always my family. Always. I grew up that way, but but that took it to another level where seeing someone, your father, where it was me and him on the court who helped me become who I am, um, almost losing to cancer, changed everything. You know what I mean? So I, I didn't give a crap about tennis anymore, to be honest with you. I was playing, I was there playing matches, but I was a shadow of me was there. And I, and, 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 and at the start when I was younger, sorry, when I was 18, 19, when I would lose matches, I would get angry and get upset. And then when I was 20 onwards, I, I, I would get upset for a split second. And then I'm like, God, I just lost a match. I got my health, my family's healthy, who cares? That was my straight away that thing. And I'm like, don't worry about it. And, you know, so I had to give you uh, understanding of, of, of what was behind my thought process where you said, can, if you go to that kid when he's 20, 23, to there's something that happened that, that put me, got me through that mindset. You know, you know what I mean? That I just, it wasn't my priority. That's just the truth. So it wasn't easily breathe. Um, after that, and then he, you know, you're praying, praying, praying for him just to get through this somehow. And then he does, just puts everything in perspective. So you got to understand that there is a reason for that mindset where eat, sleep, breathe, my mind wasn't there because it just, you know what I mean? Does that make I, sense? I, I'm beginning to understand where you're coming from. So I'm fascinated by this next 
little area to explore then. 1998 US Open, made a Grand Slam final. You lost to Pat in four. 03, you lost to Federer in straight sets when Roger won his first Wimbledon. My obvious question was, what is it like to lose a Grand Slam final? But from what you've just said, I don't know what your answer is going to be because you had a different perspective. Like, what's it like when you walk off a court and you've wanted to grow up and, you know, especially you wanting to win Wimbledon, what's it like when you get that close, flip, but you don't quite get there? You've performed brilliantly, but you haven't quite got there. Wimbledon hurt more. Let me tell you why. The US Open, I was 20. I just turned 20 at the US. Oh, hang on. No, I was 20 years old at the US Open. 98 US Open. 98, yes. Um... And uh, I was young, so nervous, came out the first set, lost the first service game. He's really in deep trouble. I mean, what Mark Filippoussis had to do first and foremost was take care of his serve. And if he had done that, all the pressure would have shifted over to Rafter. You know, and then lost that set and then came back, had a break point in the third where things were getting interesting. And if I had broke him, I think things would have been completely different. But it was tough because Pat was doubles partner, Australian, it was tough, you know. I think it would have been easier. I don't want to say easier because not he beat me, so it's not like it was tough. I'm just saying if I had played Pete in the final, he played, he played. you know, does that make sense what I'm saying? Like he yep. played Pete. If I had played Pete and just, I got nothing to lose, whereas like I got a ch- against Pat, you know, man, We've, it's the first time we played, so it was weird. We've played, we've played one doubles tournaments before. He was uh, in a partner Davis Cup. We were very close. And that was really weird. It was very difficult where it was almost, you know, where if against Pete, it would have been like, screw you, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I want to kick this guy's butt. And it kind of maybe <laughs> was too little nice, nice against, you know what I mean? I came out against Pat like that where it didn't have the same like, oh. Well, I think it was like that for the country, mate, because I can remember watching and it's like, well, who do I go for? <laughs> I, I'm gutted for the bloke that loses and I'm pumped for the bloke that wins. So I know exactly right. what Yeah, well, what it was relying. a great day for Australia. It was a win-win situation for Australia yeah. and it was awesome. But it was also a but lose-lose so, situation for Australia because yeah, one of the blokes yeah. who wanted to win was going to walk away yeah. having lost. And um, so, and think, I'm, like, I'm 20 years old, I'm going to have other opportunities, plenty of them, in a kind of like an arrogant uh, or, or kind of thinking because you don't realise how difficult it is to get in the final. But when you're so young, you don't look at how difficult things are. You're just, you know, you don't, you don't know, so you're just doing everything. You can think, you know, you're Superman. Talk about a dominating last two sets. In game set match, Rafa. Three sets to one. 6-3, Mark, congratulations on a great tournament. Unseated here. You've gotten through to your first Grand Slam singles final. You played great. Yeah, I played great. Um, you have to give all credit to Pat. Played, played some great tennis and um, he's, he's tough at the moment. You know, uh, what can I say? I played some great tennis during the week and just happy to be here. So the second one was difficult because I'd gone through three knee surgeries and after the third knee surgery, they said, I will never play tennis professionally again. I was in a wheelchair for three months, three and a half months, then crutches for a month and a half and was training in a wheelchair. And then came back to two years later being in the final, being top 10 in the final of a Grand Slam, Wimbledon by all means. And that one was like, okay, even though he was seated for, you know, I'd beat him a month before at the German Open on clay um, where he had was, was uh, 
had won it the year before, and now we're on grass, man. That's my surface. You know what I mean? This is 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 this is this is my uh, my tournament now. Those great champions will be joined today by one who will be left hoisting the Wimbledon Trophy, a moment that will be recorded worldwide and by history. It is Roger Federer and Mark Philippoussis in the championship match. You know, I've waited this long. So that was tough because um, even though I lost in straight sets, I first tiebreaker was huge. I felt like it was all momentum. If I had won the first tiebreaker, momentum would have been completely different. Set point, Federer's serve. And I've been through a lot that two weeks. I actually was on the court for six and a half more hours than he was after those two weeks. I played a couple of five-setters, one against Andre Agassi in round of 16, against Pop, 8-6 in the fifth, and then two, you know, a couple of four-setter, and I think two four-setters. And a, yeah, anyway, so um, the first set was huge momentum-wise for energy, you know, and, and that second one hurt. The second one hurt. Um, first one did too, but not like that second one, you know, watching him lift up that trophy on the court that I used to dream about since I was 10 years old. This is, this is a court where I used to stay up and I remember watching, um, Boris Becker win as a teenager two years in a row. I stayed up and watched Pat Cash win and climb in the stands. That was, there was two things I want to do as a tennis player, Australian tennis player, it's win Davis Cup and win Wimbledon. In the end, the Australian can't match Federer's superiority on centre court, making Roger the first man from Switzerland to win the championship. You know, so, yeah. So, just briefly on that, because I can see you're almost back there now. You wake up the day after you've lost Wimbledon. Is it, I have to move forward or is it, oh, geez, that's going to really sit with me for a bit because that was my childhood dream? I move forward because I, 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 I've done that for years and I do that because what's the point of dwelling? You know, the beautiful thing about tennis is there's a tournament next week, but they're going to have to wait a whole year for another Grand Slam, especially another Wimbledon. And I remember I just, what did I do? I just, first thing I did was just go on the flight back to San Diego where I was living in and just jumped in the water to surf. All I wanted to do was just surf, you know, that was my mind. That was my getaway. My thing was just, because no matter sometimes if I would feel bad or something would bug me or something was affecting me, my cleansing this way to cleanse or get through it was jump in the ocean you know what I mean that's 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 my way of, of was to deal with certain things was it just made things better that's the end of Mark Philippus's part a catch you for part B listener